You're listening to a message from Ogden Church, a gospel-centered ministry for all people. We hope during the next few minutes you gain a better understanding of God's love expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Easter season, and we are going to be examining the book of Ephesians together. This is an incredible book, as all of Scripture is. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus, and we are coming out of celebrating the resurrection of Christ, thinking about the implications of what that means for us. In large part, that's a lot of what is going on in this book as well. The Apostle Paul trying to help people think, how should our life change? How should we be different? And what we celebrate on Easter is that Jesus goes from death to life. And what we're going to see in this book is that that's what God can do in us. But you know what? We worship life. We worship this life. And we think about, well, if I had these things, I'd be happier. If I didn't go through these challenges, I would feel good. But what God reminds us is that there are ups and downs, and there are challenges. But it's often through the challenge that he brings the most beautiful things. Out of the darkness comes his light. That's what we celebrate in the resurrection of Christ. And it's what God reminds us of over and over in His Word and even all around us. Right? Like, we, we've had some nice weather recently. I feel like that's been a good thing. We should celebrate that because it's about to go away. Okay? So, <laughs> be thankful. It's going to be cold on Monday. So, what's amazing to me is a week and a half ago, my lawn looked horrible. It was brown, the grass looked like it was dead, and if I hadn't been through this cycle before, I may think that it would never come back. But what's interesting is that in the winter, when things look dead, often just around the corner is new, vibrant, beautiful life. Gary Chapman, the guy who wrote uh, the Love Language book, wrote a book called The Four Seasons of Marriage. And in this book, he argues that sometimes when marriages go through winter, some of the most difficult times, it's actually through that that God brings new and beautiful life. And it is hard to see when you're going through deep and difficult struggle. But God is at work. And we're going to look at the first 14 verses of chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians. The main theme of all of these verses is that in Jesus we are changed. In Him, something completely different happens to us from death to life. But it's in Jesus, and He is the main character of the story. We're going to see that over and over. Why does God do these things? For His glory, He does these things. 
In Jesus we are changed. In the first four verses, this is what's written, how Paul starts his letter to this church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In Jesus we are changed. Through Jesus we're chosen, adopted, and united. Three things that are completely different than what we were before. Chosen, adopted, and united. Now, for those of you that have been around church a while, know that there's some theological debate around these verses. I'm not going to solve all those issues because they haven't been solved for hundreds of years by people much smarter than me. And so, we are going to look at the beautiful truths of who Jesus is and what He has done. Chosen. We love being chosen, don't we? You love that feeling. In life, it's when you're starting to try to catch the eye of that special person, and you just feel like, oh man, they, they chose to be with me, or I chose to be with them. There's something that feels really good about that. I can remember being in elementary school, and I, I played baseball growing up, and the season would end, and all the coaches would have watched all the players play. And then, this is going to date me, this is how old I am. In our home, we had a single phone. It was one phone, and you would call it with an actual number that you would dial on the other phone. And sometimes you wouldn't just dial it, you'd, you'd rotate it in a circle. <laughs> you remember that? It's amazing. And, and we'd get a phone call, and I'd hear my mom on the phone, and I'd be like, oh man, I think that's the baseball coach, and what he was doing was saying, we've chosen your son for the all-star team. Like, we're, we're excited to invite him be, to be on the all-star team. And I felt so good about that. I was like, oh my goodness, thank you. I, I felt chosen by that coach. But you know what's amazing about that is, is I felt chosen because of something I had done. That's not what this passage tells us about God choosing us. God chooses out of His sovereign will, not our ability to earn it. You can't do anything to earn God choosing you. He chooses out of His glorious grace. We're going to see that in the following verses. Because of how incredible He is for the glory of His name, He chooses when we can do nothing to earn it. And do nothing to make ourselves good enough for Him. Living in selfishness, rejecting God, yet before everything. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. How, if it feels good to be chosen because of things that you do, 
How much more incredible is it that God just chooses when we hit run from him? We couldn't earn anything, yet he makes the choice. Tim Keller says this about what God did for us. Jesus did not die for us because we were lovely. He died for us to make us lovely. It's his death and the shedding of his blood and the resurrection that gives us this new life chosen. Because he's so, so good. Can't earn it. And to the praise of his name, people are chosen. And not just chosen, but adopted. In the next few verses, verses 5 and 6, this is how he continues. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Jesus, we receive this glorious grace and adopted as a son into the family of God. One of the most incredible things about the gospel and the forgiveness of God is this adoption is a relational element. It's not just something that we can just know intellectually. He says, no, now you're a part of my family. You're my son. You're my daughter through the blood of Christ. His son rejected so you could be welcomed home. You become a child of God. And where this world lets us down over and over, because I know on this earth there's probably a ton of stories about fathers and mothers who maybe weren't the type of father and mother that you thought you should have or wanted. Family members who rejected and turned away from us. God says, I will, even though your father and mother maybe weren't what you really needed and wanted, I will give you the family that you're longing for, that no one can take from you. I am your heavenly father, and you will be adopted into my family in such a way that no one can take it from you. In the intimacy of a love between a parent and a child, a son or a daughter, like, can interrupt their parents doing just about anything, and they'll be like, hey, okay, you're, you're more important to me than the task I'm about to complete. There's a scene in a Christmas movie, I know it's Easter, just after Easter, but we're going we're gonna to look at, we're going to talk about a Christmas movie, one of the greatest of all time. It's like, It's a Wonderful Life, and then Elf is like, they're right there. <laughs> Real close. And so, dead heat. And so, what happens in this movie of Elf is the father figure, like most movies and TV shows, is kind of a jerk. And he doesn't pay attention to his family, and he doesn't do a good job being a dad. And out of nowhere comes this son that he didn't know he had who thinks he's an elf. The story's weird. And so, 
the father kind of messes up at his high-powered sort of corporate job of, in, the, in the city of New York doing children's books, and he has this huge meeting with his boss, and he flies in on Christmas Eve, and they're having this boardroom meeting where if he doesn't get it right, he's going to lose his job. And his son comes into the room, and he says, Dad, I, I'm really concerned. I can't find Buddy, this, uh, this other son that I've been hanging out with. He's, he's missing. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. And in the meeting, the, the big boss man says, kid, you're going to have to wait. I need to hear this, and if you don't tell it to me, you don't tell me your pitch for this new book, you're going to lose your job. If you walk out of this room, you're going to lose your job. He says, son, you're going to have to wait. And the, the dad looks at the boss, and he says, don't talk to my kid like that. And then he stops the meeting and he says, well, if I'm going to lose my job, I don't care. And he walks out and he goes with his son. The son or daughter has rights that no one else has, is allowed because of the relationship to enter into situations where maybe other people would not be welcome. Like the janitor that he says hi to can't just walk into that boardroom and be like, hey man, you want to go to dinner? Like, he re you don't do that. That's not happening. But the child? The child walks in in confidence, steps towards the father, even though there's all of these other pressures, but the relationship supersedes them all. What's awesome about even that picture is the dad, when he leaves, he just sort of, he can't immediately fix the problem, but he's with his son as he walks through the hours that are to come. You see, we are chosen, chosen by God, but then adopted as his child, brought into his family. Given a new identity. One of the main questions that people are asking in our culture is, what's my identity? Where do I fit? People talk a lot about, well, I'm, I'm really discovering a lot about me. I'm finding out more about myself. People, like, this is sort of our cultural identity, right? We're, we're, we're going through trying to figure out who we are, where we fit, where we belong. What God says is when you're adopted into my family, I give you an identity that is far above them all. Amen. It doesn't matter. These other things that are begging for us to say, well, bow down to me. I'll be your identity. Jesus says, I become the primary thing through which everything else must flow. He becomes who we are and what we are in. The primary thing is not who our attraction is to. It is not political affiliation. It is the blood of Christ and adoption as a child into the family of God. This becomes our identity and who He is. Because in Jesus we are changed, chosen, and adopted Every other identity that you're wanting and looking for will leave you empty. And I've seen a lot of people go down a lot of roads of identity trying to look at all these different things, and then they're more depressed 
at the end of it. Just staring at themselves, looking in the mirror, well, if I just figure out me, I'm going to be all right. It gets worse at the end of that road. God says, come to me and I will give you an identity that is received, not decided. Died for, not made by you. And the incredible thing when we start to wrestle with, this is given to me, is humility is built into that. You don't have the ability to look at somebody else and say, well, I was chosen way better than you were chosen. It doesn't make sense. When we see it as a gift that God gives us, an identity that we couldn't earn, we can't look at anybody else in arrogance. In humility we say, God, I have tried to forge my own identity, but I long for something more only found in you. Chosen, adopted, and he talks about unity and, and how we should be united under the blood of Christ. In verse 7, this is how he continues, in him we who have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. There's two elements to this. There's a, a future perfect restored unity, and then there's a unity that we're able to have here with each other as sort of a foretaste of the unity to come. All of these divisions that we feel, the frustration and anger that people have towards each other, these lines that we draw, we create those things, and the center of them is selfishness. We are so selfish by nature. We get so angry with each other for not doing the things that we would expect. He says, look, when, when you're found in the redemption through the blood of Christ, there's unity that takes place. People that were far are brought back together. And then all of a sudden the differences melt away and what's in common becomes the most important thing. Not that there aren't differences, there are, and not that we act like they don't exist, they do. But they are not primary. The blood of Christ is. We lived in Pittsburgh for a while, and there's a, a subculture community of people. And you may have seen these people around here, but there are a ton of them in Pittsburgh. There are people who ride bikes, and I mean bicycles, not like a motorcycle, but a bicycle. Like adults, not children. And they're super into it. Spend thousands of dollars. And it's like, hey, you can ride your bike on a road that was made for cars, that's fine. Take up 25% of the lane, maybe, co it's cool. 
take your time. And so they're, they're riding their bikes. And every once in a while, I'd go to an event, and these two of these people would find each other somehow. Like, they can smell the fresh air on the other people. Like, oh, you've been for miles in fresh air. Let's talk, right? So they find each other. They're like, you bike? It's like, I bike. What trails do you do? How far have you gone? Just talking to everything. You know, I have this helmet. You have that. Whoa. And they're so into it, right? They're so into it. And all of a sudden, it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much they make at their job. It doesn't matter what they like to eat for dinner. All they care about, all they're into is the unity that they have around their love for riding bikes. They love it. And the deeper their love for what they're doing, the less their differences matter. Isn't that interesting? The more we reflect on, build our lives around, and focus on the blood of Christ is, is the primary way we get our identity. All of a sudden, some of these differences stop being primary to us and become secondary. Amen. Say, God, I can experience real unity, real love. In the blood of Christ, this mystery that's made known, this foretaste of this beautiful, eternal glory that isn't temporary and can't be taken, chosen, adopted, given this identity as a son or daughter of the King through His blood, united. Because he's that good, and our love is that deep, that it becomes the main thing in our lives. This is how he concludes his argument. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Our existence for the praise of his glory. And you also we're included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Given forgiveness, washed clean, in Him chosen. I, I know that there are a lot of people that go through extremely difficult things and things that I can't fully understand. Pain that there's no earthly explanation for. But what I know is this verse is true. 
that no matter what pain we go through, God does and will craft everything for His glory. Ultimately, He can use it all and does use it all for the purpose of His will. We get so fixated on these whatever years we have on this earth, we start thinking, well, that's got to be it. It's like reading a, a paragraph of a thousand-page novel and thinking we understand how it really should end. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And in the darkness, when the darkness is deepest, and you feel surrounded by, like, there's no way out. I'm, I'm never going to get out of this. Just maybe God's doing his most incredible work. It is what he does. It's what we celebrate on Easter. He knows that life isn't going to all be sunshine and rainbows. He knows that we're not going to exist on the mountaintop constantly. He goes to the grave so we can see that and have hope to redeem us, to give us something untouchable by the ups and downs of life. I saw a little video clip of a pastor who was talking about the pain that people go through. And he said, I know it feels dark, but what if when it's darkest, what if at its very worst, you're not buried, you've been planted. And maybe where you feel like there's death, there's a potential of new life on the other side. Here's, I've, I've seen horribly deep amounts of pain and suffering. And I don't know how to explain it. But a couple of things I do know is that whatever I'm upset about, God's upset about it more. And however much I love that person, he loves them more. And he died so that they could have hope. And when there's darkness and you feel like you're buried, maybe there's new life on the other side. You do not have to be afraid because God went to the cross so that you could be called a son or daughter of the king. A new identity that was given to you, not made by you. A hope. Because in Jesus, everything changes. We hope you enjoyed this message. Please join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 or 11 a.m. If you'd like any more information about Ogden Church, just visit our website at ogdenchurch.org or Facebook.